Well, good morning, everyone. Well, we are now well and truly into the festive period. Our tree is up and decorated. The kids, at the time of writing this, had not actually eaten all the chocolate out of their calendars, which is the first. Um, but one of them, at least, is unable to sleep until uh, over two hours past his bedtime, because uh, it's already way too exciting, even though we've nearly got three weeks left. Have a three glorious weeks. Merry Christmas, everyone. Um, and one of the biggest elements of Christmas is all the preparation that's involved in it all. There are presents to buy for family members you rarely see, but you know they're going to get you something, so you've got to get them something in return. There are cards to send to people that you haven't seen for 34 years, but you send a card every year, so you're not going to stop now. Then there's the big day itself. Buying the right size turkey or duck or goose or nut roast. And then the big one, which I'm slightly wary of mentioning because they've got a really poor reception in the first service. Working out who you're going to spend the day with, which is basically who's getting stuck with mum this year. And um, I'm in trouble with so many ladies in the first service now <laughs> as a result of that one. But my mum's not here, so I'm not in trouble with her. So there we go. But there's one big part of Christmas preparation you forget as an adult because it's something you only have to do when you're a child. I refer, of course, as writing a letter to Father Christmas. Yes, that key element to the preparation of and indeed true meaning of Christmas. And with that in mind, here are a few of the most wonderful examples that I could find. Dear Father Christmas, I need toys for this year and next year and the year after that. I can't be writing every year. <laughs> Love, Max. Dear Father Christmas, you don't have to give me anything for Christmas. Just leave something for all the other days. <laughs> Love, George. Ambitious fellow there. Dear Father Christmas, my grandmother says to my brother and me that the best present you could ever have is good health. Well, I already have good health, so I would like a doll instead. <laughs> Dear Father Christmas, last year you didn't leave me anything so good. The year before last year, you didn't leave me anything so good. This is your last chance. <laughs> and finally, Dear Father Christmas, Christmas should be earlier because kids can only be good for so long. That's from someone called Ed, weirdly. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's a fairly common name to be there. I also found some prayers from children to God on the same site that are similarly brilliant to this, and they're definitely getting shoehorned into a sermon at some point next year. Um, so we have these wonderful letters to Father Christmas to illustrate my point about the idea of Christmas planning. For some of us here today, there is still a whole lot more to pull together than just writing a single letter. And some of us fortunately, are kind of made for this. You are the born organisers. Others of us here today are not too bad. We find it all a bit stressful, but you can handle it. While still others are a bit more like me and should not be let near Christmas planning if their life depended on it. I feel maybe talking to potentially some of the men in the room at this point. Because if it was down to me and me alone, my family would end up eating the last tiny chicken in Tesco on Christmas Day because I'd forget to buy a turkey. Yes, here we have the uh, fingertip-sized portion. I'd get the last tree in the farm, and it would probably be a stick with two dead branches on it. And I'd spend our entire bank balance on the kids' presents, buying things they don't remotely want, but I wish I could have had when I was young. Yes, there I am there. It would be a weird and not pleasant Christmas for anyone, including me. 
I mean, the only way in which I redeem myself at all at this time of year is that I can cook a pretty decent Christmas dinner, which then also keeps me out of the way on Christmas morning. It's my, my one weird good thing in amongst all my awfulness at this time of year. But being this terrible planner, I really look up to people who can juggle a million things at once at this time of year and plan loads of different events, all the different venues, all the different people, and just bring everything together perfectly. My oldest sister is annoyingly, insanely good at this, but those genes just didn't seem to pass their way down to me. But one thing about the very best planners I've noticed is not how they put together and execute a plan where nothing goes wrong, because generally people happen, life happens, and despite the best laid plans, things will never go exactly the way you expect them to. But what the very best planners seem to be able to do is react to these adverse situations, seemingly without blinking, adapt their plans, and things go ahead as if that's how they were supposed to go all along. I would love to be like that, but I'm afraid that's just not who I am. For a while, I thought God was a bit like that. I mean, after all, anyone who can pull together an entire universe in six days, I mean, the scale of it is such that we can't even fathom where to start and how he would go about making the tiniest portion of it. But even in God's plan, it seemed to go wrong, didn't it? He made the world, and in his own words, he said it was good. And when it was finished, we had Adam and Eve living in the garden, living in paradise, the best, most perfect form of this world there has ever been. Surely that was the plan, the perfect plan, life as God intended. But that perfect plan seems to go wrong. Adam and Eve eat the fruit of the one tree they've been told not to, and as a result, they're thrown out of the garden forever. And all of their children, from that time to this, suffer the consequences. And then, in my thinking, along those lines, God, like the very best planners, he doesn't bat an eyelid, and he comes up with plan B. So we have Noah and the flood, and it's almost like a reset for the whole of humanity. We've got eight people left, and we're going to start all over again. And then he tries with Abraham and the birth of the nation Israel. And right through the Old Testament, we read about all these people that God works with to salvage the plan, to bring humanity back to him. And if you read it that way, it's almost like at the end of the Old Testament, we have these 400 years of nothing. It's almost like he runs out of ideas or he runs out of patience until one day he says to himself, well, the only way to sort out this whole sorry mess is I'm going to have to go down there myself. But if we look very carefully at the Old Testament, that idea very quickly unravels. God is never reacting to circumstances in the moment at all. Sending Jesus to be born, to die, and to rise again is not the last desperate attempt to sort out his plan, to salvage his plan. No, what we have throughout the Old Testament is this roadmap that God has left us, which shows us and tells us that before there was time, before the universe even existed, his plan, his whole plan, was fully formed, and part of that was a part of the Trinity would come to earth and live among us. us. The Old Testament, written hundreds of years before Jesus' birth, contains over 500 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And we're going to look at some of each of those this morning. But as we're doing this, I want you to remember, each example I'm bringing cannot contradict any other example. And also, when Jesus came, he has to fulfill every word said about the Messiah, Messiah throughout the whole of the rest of the Bible. Not just some of them, not just most of them, not just nearly all of them, but absolutely every single one of them. And what you'll see, what I hope you'll see, is that this is the single most intricately designed plan the universe has ever seen. 
and no person in the world throughout history could do a single thing to stop it, playing out exactly as God intended, despite their best efforts in some cases. In 1 Peter, we read, He paid for you with the precious lifeblood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him for this purpose long before the world began, but now, in these final days, he was sent to the earth for all to see, and he did this for you. Jesus was not plan B, and he was not God's reaction to circumstances. So as I said, first of all, we're going to look at some of the verses that provide detail about the birth of the Messiah. And I really think it's fair to say that I have saved the best till first. Because I genuinely think people overlook how incredible this verse is. It's from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, where it says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are just a small village in Judah. Yet a ruler from Israel will come from you, one whose origins are from the distant past. Now, Micah was a prophet who lived about 800 years before Jesus was born. And in his book, we read all about his contemporary situation, of how the judgment of God would fall on Jerusalem due to their sin, and afterwards God would give restoration. But Micah also talks about a time way further in advance when he describes this wonderful future where the tiny town of Bethlehem would see the birth of a ruler greater than anything Israel had seen before, greater even than King David, and he was kind of the marker against which all other rulers were measured. Now, as prophecies go, right from the off, we have trimmed things down to an incredible degree. Bethlehem isn't a big place even now. But 2,000 years ago, we're talking about a few hundred people, a handful of babies at any one time. And what's more, there's no other fulfillment of this verse throughout the whole of history. As far as I could see, no one else famous has come from Bethlehem that you could look to and say, oh, maybe this could apply to them. Although rather confusingly, when I looked this up, Quite a few interesting people have been born in a place called Bethlehem in America, and that really threw me for a second. I mean, obviously most of them were actors and stuff like that, and clearly that's not going to apply to them. But when we read about the birth of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, we find something else. It says, Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We have seen his star as it arose, and we have come to worship him. Herod was deeply disturbed by their question, as was all of Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law. Where did the prophets say the Messiah would be born, he asked them. In Bethlehem, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. O Bethlehem of Judah, you are not just a lowly village in Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. So when Herod hears the news of a king born to the Jews, he's worried. He's threatened by it. And so he gathers together the most important Jewish leaders and teachers, the experts of the time, and he says to them, well, where can we expect this Messiah will be born? And what do they tell him? They say, the scriptures very clearly lay out that he will be born in Bethlehem. They were waiting for a Messiah to be born in Bethlehem. It makes it very confusing as to how Jesus wasn't recognized, almost like on that alone, but there's so much more from the Old Testament has to tell us surrounding the birth of the Messiah. And next up is a very well-known passage, again from Isaiah. The Lord himself will choose the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. God is with us. So again, Isaiah, similar time to Micah, around 800 years before Jesus was born. And chapter 7 was written about 735 B.C., 
when a man called King Ahaz was on the throne and Isaiah was sent to him with a message that God was sending the nation Judah a sign. This sign would be called a child known as God is with us. Now what did this prophecy mean to the people of the time? Did a virgin conceive a child at this time? I think it's safe to say we would know about that. It would be written in the Old Testament if that had happened. However you try and interpret this verse for the people of the time, and there are quite a lot of different attempts I kind of read about, it doesn't really work all that well. It doesn't fit all that well. And that's because this prophecy was fulfilled 800 years later, as we read in Matthew's Gospel. As he considered this, he fell asleep, and an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to go ahead with your marriage to Mary, for the child within her has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save the people, his people from their sins. All of this happened to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and he will be called Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. So we have this prophecy that probably made very little sense to the people of the time because it wasn't primarily for them. It was part of God's longer-term plan for the restoration of not just Israel, but for all people. And this was just one of the many ways God weaved his plan into the history of his interaction with Israel so that when the Messiah did eventually come, those who really studied his word would be able to see and recognize him for who he was. But there's one more point in this area, this time surrounding Jesus' lineage, I'd like to point to. And here we turn to the book of Jeremiah. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous saviour. So here we find this odd combination of a king will come from David's line, but not a traditional king or even an ordinary person in any sense, because it's someone who will also be called Lord, a title only attributed to God. And on the same theme, in 2 Samuel, we have a prophecy which was spoken by Samuel to King David during his lifetime, when he says, When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now here's a problem, because David's kingly line of succession in the ordinary sense hasn't lasted forever. Otherwise, there will be a great, 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 great grandson of his on the throne in Jerusalem right now. And in fact, even from David's grandchildren onwards, things quickly start to unravel. But God promises here that a descendant of David's will reign forever. We have this clear promise of someone coming who will be both, on one hand, related to David, but at the same time will be worshipped or seen as God. And the only way I can see for that to be true is for God to come himself and live on earth, but to be born naturally so he can be counted as having been descended from David. That's the only way you can put those two things together. So we have these verses about Jesus' origins and birth. But what about his life? What are we told about events that will happen over the course of his time on earth? Well, first of all, we're told at some point the Messiah will enter Jerusalem triumphantly, but on the foal of a donkey. This comes from the book of Zechariah, where we read, Rejoice greatly, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, even on a donkey's colt. 
Now, in terms of the fulfillment of the prophecy we've just read, this will be very familiar to any of us who have been in church over Easter and on Palm Sunday. And, of course, we find it in more than one of the Gospels. But John writes about this when he says, The next day, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A huge crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down the road to meet him. They shouted, Praise God! Bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Hail to the King of Israel! Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, Don't be afraid, people of Israel. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, even with the examples I've given so far, it seems almost impossible to comprehend that despite all of these signs, Jesus could possibly be rejected by his own people. And yet not only does that happen, but the rejection itself is predicted as well. Isaiah 53, one of the greatest passages in the Old Testament, would clearly talk about the Messiah to come. It says, Who has believed our message? To whom will the Lord reveal his saving power? He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with bitterest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way when he went by. He was despised and we did not care. And those, those themes ring true for what we know of Jesus' life, of course. But how do we know these verses are really talking about him? How do we know any of these verses are talking about him? Well, the biggest and most obvious reason we know we're allowed to accept these as prophecy about Jesus is that the New Testament writers claim them as that. And again, this is another example where John's gospel, he claims just that. But despite all the miraculous signs he had done, most of the people did not believe in him. This is exactly what Isaiah the prophet had predicted. Lord, who has believed our message? To whom will the Lord reveal his saving power? It's really helpful when this happens because we basically have the writers of the New Testament again and again validating passages in the Old Testament, flagging it up for us and saying, that verse written hundreds of years ago about the Messiah, those verses, that's Jesus. That's who they were talking about there. It makes it so much easier for us to know what we can and can't accept because if you were to scour through the whole of the Old Testament, you could pick up any number of things that could refer to a Messiah. And so we have this validation from the New Testament writers to tell us, this is what you can accept. This is what was talking about him. And finally, for this section about the predictions made about the Messiah's life, we're going for something a little bit special, something very specific. We're going to read some portions from the Old Testament which tell us the Messiah would be betrayed by one of his closest friends for the price of 30 pieces of silver, which would then be used to buy a potter's field. It's just ridiculous, isn't it, <laughs> at this point? Whether you know all of these verses or some of these verses or haven't heard many of them before, our only response to the detail and overwhelming volume of evidence, when you look at it all together like this, it's just staggering. But let's take these one at a time. Firstly, that Jesus would be betrayed. Psalm 41, David writes about his own experience when he says, Even my close friend, whom I trusted, he who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Now, while David is definitely talking here about his own experience, a situation of his own, and he certainly had his fair share of being betrayed by those close to him during his life, this verse clearly brings to mind, and it's a foreshadowing of the betrayal Jesus would suffer. And Jesus himself tells us that when he speaks, and this is noted in, again in John's Gospel, at the Last Supper. I'm not saying these things to all of you. I know so well each one of you I chose. The scriptures declare... The one who shares my food has turned against me, and this will soon come true. 
Now Jesus was in great anguish of spirit, and he exclaimed, The truth is, one of you will betray me. Jesus said, It is the one to whom I give the bread dipped in the sauce. And when he dipped it, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. So that very clearly ties those two verses together. But what about the rest? What about the 30 pieces of silver and the potter's field? Well, now we need to turn back to Zechariah, where in chapter 11 we read, I told them, If you think it best, give me my pay. But if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. In these verses, the prophet refers to 30 shekels of silver as a goodly price. It was actually the amount paid for the life of a slave. And it also talks about the money being thrown to the potter at the house of the Lord. It's quite a lot of detail to live up to here. But what we read in Matthew's gospel ticks off every point one by one. When Judas, who had betrayed him, realized that Jesus had been condemned to die, he was filled with remorse. So he took the 30 pieces of silver back to the leading priests and other leaders. I have sinned, he declared, for I have betrayed an innocent man. What is that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priests picked up the coins and said, it is against the law to put this money into the treasury since it's blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. So, is Judas, a close friend of Jesus, given 30 pieces of silver to betray him? Yep. Does he throw the money down in the house of the Lord? Yep. And then do the priests use the money to buy a place known as the potter's field as a burial ground for foreigners? Check, check, check. You could not make this up which is just as well, because no one did make this up. This is forward planning, the like of which you will never see anywhere else. Intricacy and detail that is unmatched. And every prophecy, every verse I'm giving you, is just one more reason to trust in the reality of every word, every verse in the Bible. Of the truth of the person of Jesus, and the work he did, which enables us to be right with God, here and now, today. Now we're going to move on to some of the prophecies around the Messiah's death. And I could have mentioned today that there are verses that indicate he would not defend himself towards his accusers, that he would be crucified. But in the interest of time, the next aspect I'd like to focus on here is we're told in the book of Isaiah the purpose of the Messiah, what he came to achieve. But he was wounded and crushed for our sins. He was beaten that we might have peace. He was whipped and we were healed. All of us have strayed away like sleep, sheep, We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the guilt and sins of us all. From prison and trial they led him away to his death. But who among the people realized that he was dying for their sins, that he was suffering their punishment? I will give him the honors of one who is mighty and great, because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among those who were sinners. He bore the sins of many and interceded for sinners. So that's what we hear about the promised Savior. And there are so many verses I could have used to indicate that fulfillment of this was through, and only through, Jesus. But my favourite is not one of the many things written about him after the event by Paul or Peter that we read in their letters dotted throughout the New Testament. But these are words attributed to John the Baptist, who says this right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
John sees Jesus and immediately knows he's the one who scripture's promised. He just knows. Because no ordinary man could have the sins of the world laid on them. No normal person would be a valid sacrifice to die in our place. Only someone who was completely without sin could suffer the punishment that should have been laid on our shoulders. Only someone like that could die in our place and it actually count for something. But it actually means something. That's what John sees in Jesus the second he lays eyes on him. As I've already said, there are a lot of points about Jesus' death we could pick up on. Uh, as another example, there's a verse in Isaiah which says, He had done no wrong and he had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. Another incredibly specific example where we know he was crucified between two criminals and yet was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, who was a very rich man. There are also verses that tell us the Messiah would have his clothes divided by casting lots, that not a bone would be broken in his body. But again, in the interest of time, we're going to finish our look at things by visiting one of the most important promises about the Messiah of all, that while he would die, he would not stay dead. And this one comes from Psalm 16. And it reads, For you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your godly one to rot in the grave. In this hymn, David is thinking about his own future and mortality. But he also makes this slightly odd comment about not allowing his godly one to rot in the grave. For an explanation of his words, fortunately you don't have to rely on my opinion on things. Instead, we can go directly to the Apostle Peter, who spoke about this verse on the day of Pentecost when he addressed thousands of people and thousands were saved. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to it. Peter is saying, look, David went to the grave, so he can't be the godly one that he's talking about. Those words have to be about someone else entirely. And we know that this someone had to be descended from David, the Messiah. And that's when Peter says, this Jesus is him, the one who God has raised to life. And we've seen him. This morning, it's been a little bit frustrating for me in terms of kind of materials Sometimes it's hard because you don't feel like you have enough. Today is definitely the opposite end of that spectrum. Um, I've only been able to scratch the surface of uh, more than 300, potentially more than 500 verses I could have gone over. But let's be honest, no one would have been sticking around for that. I read somewhere in preparing for this week that mathematically speaking, the odds of anyone fulfilling even eight of these prophecies was along the lines of one in, uh, yeah, that number. One with 17 zeros after it. Slightly longer odds than that of winning the lottery, which obviously we could never do. Um, For one person fulfilling 48 prophecies, it's uh, one chance in 10 to the 157th power. So that's 10 with another 157 zeros after it. So what is the chance of one person fulfilling over 300 prophecies? Well, it's impossible. humanly speaking. One thing that kept coming back to me time after time this week is the incredible amount and detail involved in these prophecies. No person, no group of people could fix this. 
only God who knew in advance and perfectly planned to include all of this detail that was written about the Messiah hundreds of years before he was born. Just to go back to one of the points I started with this morning, it was God's plan from before the world began that Jesus would come to earth and be crucified as the complete, the one and only, final offering for sin. His plans were not altered by the actions of Adam and Eve. They didn't mess up God's plans because nothing can mess up God's plans. They're perfect, and every aspect of them will play out exactly as he means them to. But while God's plans cannot be messed up, sometimes it does feel like he messes up ours. I'm sure many of you have heard the phrase, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans, which comes from an old Jewish proverb which actually says, man plans, God laughs. (laughs) Heading towards New Year and the dreaded New Year's resolutions, we got those? I don't want to say who these are. I was going to make a joke about them being gens, but looking at some of them, this is like, I'm going to be in real trouble if I kind of get anywhere near that. And the find love one is a really quite depressing if you kind of go down that road. Um, so yes, these are random <laughs> news resolutions that definitely don't belong to anyone I know. Um, but with news resolutions in mind, I was thinking how, how now, with a few weeks in advance, now might be a good time to think about how we go about making plans. One thing I kept being reminded of during the week is that we know God, who is the greatest planner in existence, the one who made a statistical impossibility come to pass. That's how intricate, how detailed, how utterly perfect his plans are. So with that that in mind, why on earth would we go about trying to make big plans on our own? Does that make any sense to you? Because it doesn't make any sense to me. I still do it, but I know it doesn't make any sense to me. But do you go to God and ask what his plans are for your life and how you can fit in with them? Or do you come up with your own idea of how things should work out and then ask him to bless that or make it happen in the first place? Or do you even consider God at all in your planning for the future? I want to encourage you to take a bit of a step back today and take a look at your life and the plans you have and really see where God fits into all of that. And we don't need to think of this as an exercise of woe is me, I've got all my priorities muddled up or something negative like that it doesn't need to be that see it as something positive because today is a day where we can say what changes should i be making to make sure that my life fits in with god's plans for me what are god's plans for me anyway and this doesn't mean downgrading what we want for our future or somehow getting a life that is lesser in any way than the one we might hope to have we need to remember that god wants the best for us He's not sitting in heaven, looking down with his finger paused over the the lightning button, waiting to zap us for wrong choices or selfish priorities. He wants us to succeed. He wants to use us to bring his kingdom to this place. And his plans are best, always. Not just best for him, but best for us too. Because he's the only person who knows us absolutely, even more than we know ourselves. So he is the only qualified person in the universe who can look at each one of us and say, This is what's right for you. So you really want to make God laugh. You really want to put a smile on his face and put yourself in his hands. Go to him before you make life decisions. Go to him about career opportunities, about relationships, about retirement plans. From all of those big things right down to the small things. God has given us a huge picture of his will in the Bible. He's given us his Holy Spirit and he's given us Christian people to support us in our day-to-day lives. Now, he may not answer directly or specifically to us first time, every time. 
but keep including him in your decision making and give him the opportunity to direct, to open doors and to create the opportunities that you so desire. And if you're ever tempted to think you've all got it, you've got it all in hand yourself, just remind yourself of the plan that we've heard about today. God's plan for Jesus, written out all through the Old Testament, over hundreds of years, through so many different writers and the lives of different people and different nations. You think about that, and you try and tell yourself that that isn't the person that you want planning your future. Amen. (laughs)